Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by journalist Jen Stout, who has spent many months this year and last reporting from Ukraine since the invasion began. Jen has written a really interesting feature for the current issue of Prospect that's out now about Ukrainians' relationships with the languages of Ukrainian and also Russian. It's called War of the Words, and today we're going to be chatting about how Jen got to that story, her own personal relationship with Russian and Ukrainian language and her experience reporting in Ukraine. Hi, Jen, how are you? Hello, Ellen, I'm fine. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm in sunny Leith. Sunny Leith, quite a change from... The places that you talk about in your piece, um, likes of Kramatorsk and so on. It is, it is. Soon I'll be heading back to, to Shetland, where I, where I come from, finally. So, Jen, you came to us quite a few months ago now with this idea to write a piece about Ukrainians' relationship with the Ukrainian language and the Russian language and how that's changed since the Russian war in Ukraine began. Can you tell me a bit about what this, what your essay is about, what the story is that really piqued your interest? Yeah, I, I really enjoy, I mean, I spent quite a lot of months travelling around Ukraine, as you said, so from, from March 2022 um, on and off, I was in Ukraine for the past 14 months. And, you know, I, I it's a great pleasure to just speak to people and try to really understand what's going on. And one of the things that really interests me the most is these bigger questions of who do people think that they are? How does that feed into the politics and identities and the future of Ukraine, actually. And language is so much at the heart of all of this, as, as it always is. As I speak, I speak Russian. I don't speak Ukrainian, but I can understand bits of it. I am learning it. And that's because I, I studied Russian in, in school in Shetland a long time ago. And so I had so many conversations and so many kind of just anecdotes that have built up over this period of reporting that I really wanted to try and bring those together to paint a picture for people because I think the best way to understand something that's quite complicated is through stories and you know people and places and a lot of my reporting took place in Kharkiv in Odessa in the east of Ukraine and so these are places where a lot more people speak Russian than you would find in the west of Ukraine and of course that gave me quite a lot of interesting stories and and also you know I spend a lot of time just talking to friends in depth for a long time and long road trips around the kitchen table and often we talk about their relationship with Russian 
and with Ukrainian as, as more and more of them switch over into Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And so what would you describe as kind of the trend that you've seen and that you've pieced together from these different stories? Well, it's a huge switch and into Ukrainian. That is particularly true for people around my age, so 30s and, and younger. A lot of my friends now will, you know, they grew up in, a lot of them grew up in, in Russian-speaking households and they will now completely refuse to speak Russian with me. I, I understand why. For some of them, it's a very political point. For some of them, it's also quite emotional. It's actually traumatic to talk in the language of the people who are oppressing them, particularly when there's such a push to interpret and understand all of the centuries that led up to this war, all of the narrative and the background of imperialism from Russia, both from the Tsarist Empire and in the Soviet Union, which included a lot of incidents of of Ukrainian being banned, of the Ukrainian culture and language um, being banned, And so they're interpreting all of this stuff, they're talking about this stuff frequently, and for them, in their everyday life, that means, that does mean switching to Ukrainian very insistently, and sometimes, you know, telling other people that they should be switching into Ukrainian too. And as I say, I'm not, you know, I completely understand why they're doing that. I think for people older, say like 50s, 60s, 70s, it's it's a slightly different situation. They won't some of them, depending on where they grew up, a lot of them won't speak as fluently in Ukrainian, won't feel as comfortable speaking Ukrainian as some of the younger ones. But a lot of them are switching as well. So these are all the kind of, yeah, the reasons, the anecdotes and the, the little histories that I try and put into this piece. One of the things that you talk about in the piece is kind of the also the visible, like, nudges in a way in cafes, in shops, encouraging people to, as you say, make the switch from Russian to Ukrainian. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about some of those things that you've seen, the kind of physical manifestation of this of this change? Yeah, the 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 photo that that we used in the piece is from Odessa actually in April last year. I was in Odessa for about a month and there was lots of really good art posters that people had put together. Very a lot of satire. Satire has been a huge part of Ukrainians resistance to the Russian invasion. And this one in particular had a, an old, very well-known Russian textbook for school kids. And over the top of it had been pasted this horrible white spotted tongue in the words, in English, the words toxic. And that summed up a lot. I saw that poster a few times, but I took a picture of it in, in Odessa that time at the, the book market. Um, there was, yeah, in, in cafes, I'd say that in cafes in, in Lviv, in Kiev possibly, but particularly in Lviv, in the west of Ukraine, I would see if you, yeah, there'd be a poster saying, I mean, not sort of berating people, but saying, try and switch into Ukrainian, you know, let's, uh, and it's part of that encouraging us all to be together, um, encouraging this growth of a, a sense of Ukrainian togetherness, of nationality, of, of united feeling, which, you know, I, I understand it's very necessary if you are faced with this terrifying and sometimes almost existential threat of, of Russian invasion. So, yeah, you'd see that fairly frequently. And as I, as I start the anecdote with, uh, um, start the piece with the anecdote of trying to trying to speak Russian, trying to speak Ukrainian in a tobacconist and ending up just really annoying this guy because he didn't want to hear any, any more Russian and you can understand why. Yeah. Is this kind of a new phenomenon or 
how far back does the does this kind of trend, the tail of this trend go? It's not a new phenomenon, for sure. So I talk about in the piece the importance of what happened in the 1920s with the executed renaissance, the executed generation of Ukrainian writers. This was particularly centred on Kharkiv because Kharkiv at the time was the capital of the Ukrainian SSR. Um, didn't, didn't remain so, but there was a, a brief Ukrainianization. there was a brief, you know, the, the, um, the policy at the time was to permit places like Ukraine within the Soviet Union to use their own language, to have newspapers in, in their own language as a part of them, hoping that they would reconcile themselves to Bolshevik rule. And so Kharkiv became this thriving place with artists and playwrights and writers, and in fact they all ended up, a lot of them ended up living in this, in this one house in Slovo, the house of the word. That was a great flourishing time, which their writing in Ukrainian still has a huge impact on a lot of people that I know. They use that as an inspiration. All of those writers, most of them were killed in the 1930s. And in fact, the Slovo House, the House of the Word, which I, I stayed in a few months ago, became the focal point of NKVD, knocks at the door, and a lot of those people were murdered in a prison camp in, in northern Russia. Because... You know, Stalin decided that that was that Ukrainianization was was over, and and really decided to wipe out any idea of the nation of Ukraine. And you see this narrative again with with what Putin says; it's very very similar. And the way to wipe out the idea of the nation is to eradicate all of the writers, which they which they tried to do for quite a long time. So this sense that speaking and particularly writing in Ukrainian is a form of resistance to empire has been around for a long time, before the 1920s as well. And it really, it, it's so important now. I think I, I reported a story about a children's writer, Volodymyr Vakulenko, who was killed. I wrote it for the New Humanist. And he he wrote in Ukrainian specifically, although he'd grown up speaking Russian, speaking Surzhik actually, because he's from a village outside of Izium. And for him, the, the writing, for him and all his friends, the writing in Ukrainian was a, was a deeply political act. And giving up Russian altogether was also a deeply political act. The sense that Russian had been so pervasive, invasive, had been such an undermining force in their own country for such a very, very long time, that it really just had to be left in the ditch. That was the only way forwards. After the break, we'll talk more about the resurgence of the Ukrainian language in daily life. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In your piece, you mentioned your time in Russia as a student, as you say, you, you learned Russian. And you also encountered, I guess, the other side of that that dynamic, so the perspective that some Russians had on on Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. The the conversation I recount in, in this essay is actually from recently studying in Russia because for various reasons I was living in Moscow before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine 2022. So I've been there for a few months and I was, I was on a programme and I was studying Russian and my, we had some, our Russian teachers were these sort of lovely, quite slightly intimidating, no-nonsense Muscovite women, very proud Muscovite women. And, you know, we, we got on quite well, but you had to avoid certain topics or maybe we shouldn't have done. Maybe we could have been slightly more courageous about that. Anyway, her, one of our big bugbears was the way in which young people in former parts of the Soviet Empire where places where Russian is still very widely spoken like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan but particularly Georgia young people there rejecting Russian for their for their native language and she said (laughs) very sniffily well what a terrible shame you know because because they're losing access to everything that we gave them to this great civilization to the possibility of studying in moscow which of course is just the pinnacle of everything and it's a real imperial sense of pride that has never really been challenged and if anything is only strengthened because of the humiliation and shame uh, that are still felt very deeply by this woman in particular about what happened to to russia and to moscow in the 1990s the poverty and, and the fear and the sort of social breakdown and and it was just, it was such a um, there was no arguing with her you know you you couldn't really put across a different point of view which is which is often the case when you're trying to have a discussion in in Russia I find yeah that's super interesting as you say you see now in some of these post Soviet states uh, not just that kind of grassroots attitude of wanting to switch away from Ukrainian but there's also it's also coming in terms of policy and understandably that the authorities in Ukraine are you know, also championing the Ukrainian language. But that's not easy for everybody in Ukraine, those who are educated, brought up in Russian. Um, and as you say, particularly kind of in the east of the country, that's that's something that you've encountered. So can you tell us a bit more about that dynamic and the, the challenges as well that come along with this move? Yeah, it is very, very complicated. And the problem is because everything is so heavily politicised and mobilised by Russia, any perceived what they would what they have called in the propaganda the oppression of Russian speakers in Ukraine, which is a lie. But any perceived hint at that is immediately pounced on by the Kremlin and its useful idiots all over the world to propagate the idea 
that there is an oppressed minority of Russian speakers in the south and the east of Ukraine. It is a lie, but it is a very common lie. I hear, I, you know, people repeat this to me all over, all over Scotland, all over the UK. They say, well, yes, but isn't there a problem with them being terribly oppressed? It's very effective propaganda. Having said that, there were language laws that you can understand why they were brought in. They were a very, very blunt tool and they were criticised from, from you know, human rights organisations. They were doing things like insisting that all state officials would speak in the Ukrainian language because it is the state, the state language. I mean, some would say that's perfectly reasonable. Also insisting that newspapers would be, most newspapers would be published in Ukrainian. And more recently, there's been laws brought, brought in about controlling the import of books from Russia. And you have to see this in the much bigger picture of Ukraine having been this <laughs> oppressed satellite of Russia, having having everything coming from Russia, you know, all the books coming from Russia, all of the orders coming from Russia, whether directly or indirectly, and Russia still maintaining that control over, over Ukraine, even after independence, through infiltration, subversion, and huge amounts of meddling, basically. And so, and I, I would often think about this in terms of, of Scotland, actually. I didn't put this in the piece, but it's, it's something to, to untangle at some point, where we have a lot of government effort, a lot of government money going into reviving or at least maintaining the Gaelic language. Not entirely successfully and certainly not without controversy. Whereas in Ukraine, I mean, really walking around a bookshop with a friend during a blackout, and she says, if you'd been here 10 years ago, 12 years ago, all these books would have been in Russian. So that change has been so fast, so fast, that of course for some people it's it's dizzying. And, and yeah, what I, what I wanted to put across in the piece is <laughs> somewhere gently in the middle. People will always be, I imagine, or for a long time anyway, be speaking Russian in certain parts of Ukraine. That doesn't mean that they are pro-Russia. It doesn't mean that they are suspect. It doesn't mean that they are somehow not loyal to the Ukrainian state. It's just the language that they grew up with, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not something that you can change overnight, uh, either because of cultural norms or because of educational policies. That's going to take a generation, at least. Yes, it, yeah, it takes a long time. And somebody might argue, why Why should they? It's their language. The, the Russian language doesn't belong to Moscow, you know. I mean, the, words, the word Russia doesn't actually belong to Moscow, where they just stole it from Kiev and Rus and then rebranded themselves because they had been Muscovy, of course. You know, it's, when, you, when you unpick a lot of um, foundational myths of, of nationhood, they all often turn out to be absolute nonsense. But that's fine, you know, we all do that and then we build on what we have. But now is the time for Ukraine to be able to build its solid foundation and, and it's, doing, it's doing that a very, very good job of that because it has to. I think one really interesting thing about language is that... you. You can't, and again, you could talk about you could talk about the Scottish context of this as well. Words, especially place names that have been a colonial place name. I mean, Donbass is a colonial exploitative place name. You could argue it, it means that kind of river basin, and we use it all the time to refer to that entire area, that coal coal producing area, Luhansk and, and Donetsk oblasts or regions. And a lot of people feel that that word should not be used anymore. It was a it was a a Russian word to refer to a place that they were exploiting. And and actually Donetschina is, is the, the name for that region, the older name for that region, the Ukrainian name for that region. And things like that are starting to catch on and starting to change. But of course, as you say, it's generational, it takes time. And if there's too much 
<laughs> who am I to tell anyone what to do? It's not my country and it's not my war. But if there, you always see this, if there's too much berating and too much vilifying of people who are moving a little bit too slowly, it doesn't go that well. Mm-hmm. So coming back to how things are now in, in Ukraine, is this kind of a live discussion about inclusivity, about the use of language? Where is that discussion going now and how do you see it playing out in, in the coming months? If, if, you, if you can make that kind of assessment. I always shy away from predictions, to be honest. Yes. But, Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, of course, it's a, it's a live discussion. Like every discussion about nationality, about these bigger issues, there's always a sense of, oh, can we just wait until we win the war? We're just, we're just kind of reasonable, you know. They've, they've got a big job to do and it's very, very heavy. A lot of people are, are losing their lives and a lot more will. But yes, that, I think that discussion is ongoing within families as well. I think that's the most interesting thing is the, the conversations people have with their, with their mums and dads and their grannies about the kind of language, yeah, about the language that they use and how they feel about that. I mean, I think it's, a, such, a, it's such a deep personal feeling to, to actually switch your language and to reassess the language that you grew up in and that you think in and that you dream in and suddenly look at it and say, well, <clears throat> was this ever me? Was this ever us? Or was it an imposition from outside? I mean, that's a deep psychological thing. I, I can't personally imagine it very much myself. And I think that, for me, that's the most interesting thing, where the psychological and the social overlap into these huge, big societal shifts. So, Jen, last time, or when we spoke recently, you were getting in a, a convoy of of vans to go to Ukraine on your most recent reporting trip. You're now back in the UK again, but what what's your what are your next steps for thinking about the war in Ukraine? Where do you take this story and your thinking around this issue forwards? I'm back in Scotland for the foreseeable. I plan to go back to Ukraine around September time and I'm yeah, studying language, I think, because I want to be able to speak Ukrainian for lots of reasons. One of them is basic element of respect. And I'm writing a book about this past year and planning a few kind of longer longer features and re- reported features, mostly in, in, in the East, in Donetschina, I should say. And that, yeah, that's the plan is to go back in, in September at the moment. Yeah, and tell us a bit about the theme of your book and everything that it brings together. It's, it's a lot of what we've been talking about, actually, which is, I suppose, taking a kind of sociological view, because that is what I was trained in as a student, what really interests me. But to explain these big issues, like, what is going on? And this is what people often say to me who, you know, they know there's a war going on, they're not following it that closely, but they just find it really bewildering, really, really complex and confusing. And they say, what's actually going on? And I think, again, to talk about who people think that they are, because that has changed massively in, in Ukraine for a lot of people. Who do they think they are? What kind of country do they want? What kind of people do they think they are? And, and that can tell you an awful lot about how things might pan out. I think there's a huge amount to be hopeful about in Ukraine because of all the extraordinary people that I've met who've taught me a lot about what matters and how you should pursue your life. And yes, the book will be looking at these issues through people, places, stories, anecdotes, and 
the rather haphazard way that I've travelled around Ukraine, which is um, just me in my rucksack and getting on night trains and going to birthday parties and speaking to people at yeah. great length. Yeah. The yeah the life of a freelance reporter in Ukraine not an easy one. It's not an easy one, but I I wouldn't I wouldn't swap it for anything. I think I'm incredibly incredibly lucky actually. I mean, it's a really really good reminder of how true it is that you never do anything good alone. I had so much help, you know, people giving me lifts and sofas to sleep on and contacts and, you know, advice. And their stories. And their stories, of course. I mean, people trust me with their stories. And, and it really, like, you feel so blown away sometimes by people at the worst minute of their lives. You know, so much time there is spent basically looking at the aftermath of a big missile strike on a block of flats. I would like to not ever do that again. And I suspect I will do that again because that's what Russia does. And and talking to people and being so blown away by how willing they are to talk to you. Often, you know, often what, what newspaper editors want is the, the stories, of their stories about how terrible it was and what happened. And what they want to do is say, what the hell is Russia doing? So much for this brotherly nation. Putin's gone mad. We'll never speak to them again. I mean, they, they always want to rant articulately with this fantastic fury about what the, what this is and a lot of that is this sense of betrayal so you hear this like Bratsky Narod this the brotherly people which was just a big Stalinist lie and a lot of people knew it was a Stalinist lie and now a lot of a lot more people understand that as well so I would hear that a lot yes so it's a bringing together all of these rather jumbled things into a coherent form yeah well Jen, thanks so much for sharing your story and by extension, the stories of those people that you've met with us. Take care of yourself next time you go, you're back in Ukraine. And I'm sure we'd love to hear more about your book and all of the stories that are included in that at a later point. That's all we're going to have time for today. So I'll just say thank you very much to Jen for Zooming in to join me this morning to have a chat about her essay. If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of our brand new issue of Prospect magazine, which also includes a cover story on the future of conservatism by David Aranovich, writing from Sarah Manavis on the conspiratorial world of Russell Brand, Stella Assange on how journalism has been criminalised and Ian Dale's diary, as well as much, much more. And while you're here, why don't you subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brearley. It is honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live a little differently to you. Just search for Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.